Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Homo Sapiens. Welcome, come in, make yourself comfortable. Let's pop the kettle on and have a cup of tea. Welcome, whoever you are. Welcome. Always trying to get a plug in for your show. I'm sorry, but yes. So Will's in Cabaret. Tickets are <laughs> that's available. That's not from Cabaret. Oh, no. What no, that's it? from Shooting Stars. Welcome to Homo Sapiens. Chris. Yes. I'm experiencing anger today. Uh-oh, okay. It's not, it's not towards you. Can I just say something that you say to me quite a lot, which is halt. Hungry, hungry. angry, lonely, tired. Is that what's Interesting. happening? Interesting. No hunger, anger. I don't think loneliness, mm-hmm. not tired. Got to get it out. Robert Webb, who I talk about a lot on this podcast, he has been promoting his book. And he talks about how boys are taught at a young age to, and this is not exclusive to boys, it can be girls as well, to not be able to express things like embarrassment, shame, and it comes out in anger. Yes. Is that what's happening for you today? Oh my God, Chris, is that, honestly, why do I need to pay a therapist when I've got, is it like when having I've got a, Chris Sweeney it's here? It's like having a foot rub, isn't it? Can you give me a foot rub? <laughs> I didn't bring my gloves. Who is our guest this week, Chris Sweeney? Our guest this week is none other than interior decorator to the stars, aesthete, socialite, man about town since the dawn of time, Mr. Nicholas Haslam. David always says he and I invented the 60s. He said in 1959 that we invented the 60s. If you want ringside seats to all of the luminaries from the past literally 100 years, this is the interview. It was the first picture ever published of the Beatles in America. And did you like them? Didn't I, John? Cunt. <laughs> Why is John Lennon a cunt? If you listen on, you'll find out the answer. It was fascinating. It's back to the future with a man that lived through all that time that is called the Golden Age. We met at a party when I was 21 and I heard this voice shouting behind me. He looks just like a young Terence Stamp. <laughs> I was like, and there was this guy, Nicky Haslam, standing behind me. Hello, darling. Who are you? I didn't know who Terence Stamp was. So I said, who's Terence Stamp? Very handsome. Oh, My mum um, fancies him. Really? And so what happened? He came up. He came up. Nicky is fascinated by people. So he'll always go and talk to people at parties. He'll be like, who are you? Tell me your story, blah, blah, blah. We became great friends from then. You need to stick around and listen to this interview because he is an extraordinary man who has been at the centre of every kind of cultural event from the past, you know, literally 70 years. He knows everyone from Marilyn Monroe to Lady Gaga. So I feel we've got a lot to talk about. We do. As ever. Mm. Should we start with just what we did last night? Let's. We went to a gig. We made a friend. So lovely lady came up to me. She came up. Can I just say, I was listening to your podcast on the way here. And she's recently become a lesbian uh, with her friend. And neither of them had been sexual with women before. Mm. They're very happy. 
And as we head into winter, great exactly. Decision. Always get a partner to go into winter with. Yeah. Long walks and red wine by the fire, which is basically on every single dating app. Mm-hmm. I love red wine and long walks, <laughs> and also love the occasional night out. Fuck off! Oh gosh, that's where it's coming <laughs> from. The anger's coming out. Uh, 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 all primal. You can do a scream I'm here. I'm a jaguar. Oh, can you do your cat? <laughs> It's such a good impression, that. You know what I think we should do? I think we should put the real sounds side by side against that impression. I don't think you'd hear a difference. And then Mm. challenge the listeners. We've got a competition, our first competition going. Apart from the T-shirt one. Apart from the T-shirt one. (laughs) We've got our second competition going. (laughs) Which sound is real? So, sound A. So, that's sound A. And now sound B. Earlier we ran the competition for... <laughs> what did they win? Am I getting more radio? You're getting more David Attenborough, I was just thinking. Then. Oh, what were we saying? No, so it was very nice to speak to a listener. Yeah. She also had a lovely friend who had has stopped acting and is, was training to be a psychotherapist. and had an amazing chat with her. Oh, wow. Super cool. She had amazing eyes. Really? A little bit of a crush I had. An angry crush. <laughs> I feel like I'm missing out on sexual fluidity. Everyone's being sexually fluid at the moment. One friend became a lesbian, now another friend's become a lesbian. Yeah. You know, this girl I met last night and I thought, God, maybe I'm missing a trick here. Mm. You know? Maybe it's girls for you. Well, it could be. Mm. You know what? Today, when I go to rehearsals, instead of checking out the boys' asses, I'm going to check out the girls' asses. See what comes up. See what comes arising. <laughs> There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. <laughs> So this is a very interesting case. A couple have decided to take a stand against a transgender girl coming to school in girls' uniform. They're saying that it's distressing their child, their son. The child has become confused. And so they want to make a stand and say, I'm just going to throw in their religious as well. Make of that what you will. They mentioned diocese a lot on Radio 4, I noticed. I thought it was very interesting because their main point was that it's really confused their son. And he doesn't know what to do about it. It's like, well, just help him with it. This isn't the first time in his life he's going to come across some confusion. You know, it's like, oh, there's a black person that might confuse him. Let's take him away. You know, there's a gay person. And I just thought if that's your argument, Mm. it's a pretty weak argument. And there was another conversation surrounding the John Lewis furore that's been going on about sort of gender neutral clothes or at least them labeling them for girls clothes it's for girls and boys for boys clothes it's for boys and girls Mm. and someone came on from some quarterly publication that no one ever reads this woman was saying well where do you stop and what I find with these people is they go into very black and white catastrophizing things you know it's very daily mail like oh where does it end and you know this woman was saying exactly this woman was saying oh well boys can't be boys anymore and girls can't be girls you know what happens if girls want to wear pink the thing is fine they'll wear pink the whole point is giving more choice yes it's not an attack on gender Mm. it's not going boys are wrong girls are wrong you can't be a boy it's just going 
you can be mm. what you want to be. For me, that just gives a child more choice and more empowerment. Don't, it's not yeah. about going, oh, this is the other thing about the parents. I know I'm flipping around, but they were going, oh, well, the minorities are winning. We shouldn't give in to just pandering because one transgender child wants to come to school in the uniform that actually is right for her or him, mm. you know, dependent on the, the child. And they're going, well, we're pandering to minorities. Just very narrow-minded people that don't want to think liberally. I empathise if someone's child is confused. You know, my nephews and nieces were confused. My niece said to me the other day, do you go out with boys? And I said, well, infrequently, but I do. <laughs> you know, and she was absolutely fine with it. She was a bit confused. Yeah. We sorted it out and then we carried on. Funnily enough, we carried on braiding her hair. I yeah. didn't feel like I was making her into a girl, but she yeah. also has the choice, if she wants to, of wearing, you know, boys' dungarees. One of the things the parents said about the kid who's gone to school in what she deems to be her correct uniform right now is that, you know, well, what does this mean? And I said, she's very young. She can kind of work out if it feels right. And if it's not, she can go back to being a boy. You know, you're allowed to explore that stuff. And the reason you get problems, so over 50% of transgender people have tried to kill themselves. Yeah, is because, I think. It's because you're not allowed to experiment with your gender. And that there's what you were saying earlier, is that people, society, for whatever reason, put such stakes on yes. transgressing from yes. your gender. And you should be able to... I mean, what on earth? Does it matter? You've put it really succinctly. You know, what's going to happen? All the boys and girls are going to start wearing different clothes, yeah. you know, and it's like, fucking grow up. And you're like, you know, you're an adult and you can't cope with the fact that mm. people might wanting to do something different that you didn't do. And primarily it's selfish of yes. the parents and of the adults. Yeah. They can't deal with it. And these cunts that are on this morning, I mean, and also... The anger's still here. It's there, actually. I feel better now I've completely obliterated their characters. Yeah, well, it's good to get it out there. I know where they live. We will find you. Um, <laughs> I can't do oh, it. Oh, I can't do it either. Um, that was just me breathing in. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a whole conversation this week about strictly having same-sex dance partners. And I think it's really interesting. I'd love to know what our listeners think, because should Susan Calvin have had a female dance partner, should Reverend Richard Coles have a male dance partner? What I think is interesting about that is you should be able to dance with whoever you want. Mm. But I'm asking, is it that a female sexuality and a male sexuality coming together in a dance is its own thing that is different to a woman dancing with a woman and a man dancing with a man because there is a sort of, let's say, a yin and yang about it. And to actually say, if I'm a gay man, I have to dance with a man almost makes me not able to be... No, I'm a man. Yes. And, you know, and a woman, you are a woman and you can have your feminine sexuality come towards a male sexuality and that is a heady mix that cannot be replicated by man and man or female and female. I'm, I'm asking. Well, yeah, I'm not. and also I think alongside that, another element is how dance is formulated. You know, a male ballet dancer with a, another male ballet dancer couldn't replicate dancing in a tutu on point. Mm. You know, you don't get many men that do dance on... I know one of them. <laughs> Bonjour, no boys. Um, <laughs> as, I, as I sort of fall over on my blocks. Oh, shit, <laughs> fuck, my ankle. Um, and also, when I did Strictly, and people were having conversations about same-sex partners, you mm. know, then, they're different forms in terms of the actual shapes 
that a man and a woman take. Mm. And so for me, I think, and I've seen men dancing with men in, uh, in ballroom, in mm. Blackpool. It was amazing. I stumbled across it when I was on tour. Try to join in the competition. That is amazing. And they look different because they're different shapes, you know, and they're different holds. And so I think that's totally fine within the element of strictly itself. No. And when I danced with my partner, Karen, we did the tango. It was the mm. first dance to David Bowie. Bloody loved it. It was mm. all about a connection. I didn't try and pretend that I wanted to screw her. Yes. I just was like taking on the character. Yes. And I think actually I'd find it more insulting if someone's like, you've got to dance with a man because you're gay. It's the same as acting. It's like, no, I don't. You are occupying your male sexuality, whether that is gay exactly. or not. Exactly. It's, it's just, like, you're still a man. Yeah. And within the tango, like the, I think it's the tango or Argentina or something, when the man plays the bull yes. character. So... I love that. I mm. bloody loved that. And I loved being close to a woman. I was like, this is great. And mm. she's a lot lighter to lift than a man. I mean, I could not have done that Bollywood salsa with a, with a man who's 13 stone. Do you know what I mean? No. She was lithe. She was like a panther. And then I quit. <laughs> well, to be honest, I'd reached the zenith of my, of my ballroom dancing career. Quite right. Our conversation with Nikki Haslam is coming up. Hey, boop, 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 boop. That's me being technological. Should we look at Twitter? Oh my God, let's look at Twitter. Bearing in mind, one of the most inspirational things about Nikki is that he has done a zillion different jobs in his time. So we thought we would ask our listeners, what did you want to be when you grew up? Tina Turner. Is that who you wanted to be? Yeah. Simply the best. Oh, I love her so much. Mm. My name is Tina Turner. I have nothing. My name is Tina Turner. I have no money. Oh my God. God. Oh, my God. I tried that in a kebab shop once. It didn't Did work. You? Yeah, three in the morning. Michelle Green says, an engineer. As a female, I was told engineering was not for girls, but I've been a civil engineer for 18 years, proving everyone wrong and challenging stereotypes. Yes, yes, yes. You go, Strong sister. work, girl. Desintra Miller says, a dancer, my careers advisor in school, thought I should join the army because I was good at sports. I think she was in the wrong job. Interesting, actually. I think my grandmother reminded me when she found out I was gay and it was a great little line. She said, well, you did always want to be a ballet dancer, darling. Yes, I've heard things like that. When I was a kid, the first job I ever said that I wanted to be was a burglar because you got everything for free. And my mum said, you can't be a burglar. This explains so much. I know. That's why half your crockery is missing. That's why I always shake you down before you leave. Yeah. Full cavity search. Um, (laughs) And then I wanted to be a baker because I like cakes. Then I wanted to be a car designer. This list will end in a second. I like these, though. There's definite development. Then I wanted to join the army. This That's is a curveball. I thought it would man me up. And I thought, oh, because everyone was so always called me a sissy at school, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'll join the army. That'll turn me into a proper man. Then I wanted to be a film director. And here I am, podcaster. You have gone round the houses. Now, yeah. I always wanted to be a singer. Really? And you just went for it? always knew I wanted to be a singer from the age of four. I just kind of knew it was going to happen. So I wasn't really scared about it. And when I entered Pop Idol, I still kind of felt like, yeah, I'm going to win this. It was very strange. It was always with me. I'm going to be a singer. Even though I went to study politics at uni and I didn't really sing much, I had a premonition that I was going to win a TV talent show. And I did. Coming up now is our interview with Nikki Haslam. He's an interior designer. He is a socialite. 
But both of those things would be to file him under flibbertigibbet, and yes. he's not. And people do trivialise him, and I think that's why I wanted to chat to him because he is absolutely the person who embodies the zeitgeist and always has because he's fearless so when he was 17 he became friends with david bailey the famous 60s fashion photographer and mick jagger what were you doing when you were 17 i think i was like eating crisps in my bedroom i was listening to d'angelo and drawing picassos on my wall david bailey said that him and nikki haslam created the 60s nikki was responsible for the beatles going to america he was best friends with mick jagger there is no stone unturned when it comes to Nikki and his knowledge of the most transgressive, progressive people on the planet. We're sitting in this incredibly peaceful apartment. The roar of the traffic and the sirens of the hospital. We went to his extraordinary flat. I don't know anyone who could throw all that stuff into a place and make it look like it all works together and it's so eclectic. But someone described this room as a ballroom, didn't they? Somebody described it as a dream of Cole Porter. Coming up now, our interview with Nicky Haslam. Grand piano in the window. Got a grand piano that cost 52 pence. 52 pence? Mm. Where did you get it eBay. 52 pence from eBay. Actually, it's got me thinking, is eBay, when the dawn of eBay came about, was that just the most wonderful thing for someone like yourself? Well, it wasn't to begin with. I mean, I've sort of got into it, but I was a bit scared of it to begin with. I kept scared of everything new. It's interesting you say you're scared of things that are new, because I would say... You are the person I know more than any 18-year-old who embraces the new. <laughs> well, I try, but I'm not very good at it. I'm quite good at sort of knowing what's going to happen, but, but uh, perhaps not in technology, but I, I, I sort of read what's coming in fashions quite well. Mm. Clothes and decorating and everything, at least I think I can. And when I started decorating, I mean, people that were sort of decorated were sort of wild puffs that ran up ladders screaming about mauve curtains. <laughs> and I sort of had to make it much more... A, an art in a kind of way, or, a, or a, a kind of fully rounded picture that people would get. That's why I do the watercolours. Mm. And not just, you've got to change all that, you've got to throw this away, that away. I, I sort of try and incorporate everything about people's lives into, into what I do. Going back to the very beginning then, where did you grow up? My parents had a house in Buckinghamshire, and I was born there and grew up there. And what kind of kid were you? I was quite sportive until I got polio, and that took three years out of my life and then I just sort of lay back on mauve cushions and screamed at people. When I went to school, private school, I was incredibly dim because I was three years by nobody else. And my parents hired a tutor during the holidays and he was incredibly good looking. Naturally he was gay and naturally he seduced me, which was absolute heaven on earth. I was very gentle, I wasn't, I was just hugging and kissing, it was nothing more than that. But it was, it was the first person who'd actually ever being tender towards it. it was really wonderful. How old was he? 32. Was that a formative thing, would you say? I mean, did you know you were gay? I don't think at eight you can, or nine you can really know you're gay. And I'm not sure how gay I was then, really, or how, how gay I am now. I don't have that, that much of a gay life. I don't have many gay friends. So it's not really my world. I mean, I obviously am gay, but I've never been sort of worried by it that's different but perhaps I mean that I mm. was not worried by it all and never, never I hope made other people worried but it's interesting you say that because that's another example of you being incredibly modern because if you talk to kids today and this is a generalisation but they don't see the binary identification they'll say I'm queer 
you know, I wish they would. Mm. And that seems to be what you were feeling, age nine. Hearing you talk and hearing what Chris was saying, it seems there was a sense of fluidity. Sometimes that people like to make people rigid. Okay, so you're in this group. I don't know whether it is was the era or the time or being gay had stopped being something like a, a, a not a quite a pariah but a sort of joke. They became pets. Of people. I mean, people loved gay people suddenly, and there were so many around that I felt they were the most interesting people my parents knew. And my parents went against my being gay. Once they took it on board, they were wonderful about it. What was it like being a young gay man in those times, so in London? Well, it was fun because I, luckily I'd met the most wonderful world of gay people in London. I mean, that whole world of Beaton and Oliver Massel and Noel Coward. And I was in a very recherche world even at 17. It came very easily to me. And also, the opposite of people like David Bailey, who was my closest friend. I loved that whole mod scene and everything. I just sort of, t- I could take everything in without stepping on people's toes in a way. What were they like, those people? What was Noel Coward like? Noel Coward, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was fun. He did say funny things. I was staying with some friends in Austria, and uh, Noel Coward came to lunch, and he was leaving. He, put his hat, he just opened the door of his car. And Ryman there said, Goodbye, Noel, go with God. Noel said, I did once, dear. Disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so quick, isn't it? There was a secrecy around those kind of people. Well, that well. was the fun of it, really. I was uh, wondering. Forced that. to say it was, yeah. it was much more fun being gay then. Because now everybody seems to be gay even if they're straight. It's so boring. <laughs> and it was much more romantic. And you, if you saw somebody across the room, you found out their address and you arranged to meet every candlelight dinner and your hands would touch and then you'd get in touch and then you know, and then letters saying, I'd like to see you again and all that. It was much more romantic. It was very little picking up. Was that because of the climate of secrecy? It did make it more romantic. No, I think it's more the climate of manners. Oh, really? Mm. There was that wonderful club called the Rockingham. Yes, gay bar ever behind the Austria Avenue. It was such fun to go there and see so many sort of famous faces. People like Bunny Roger and Hardy Amos and actually one saw Anthony Eden there. Giel Good. Noel even. He'd go there. Did you become friends with David Bailey then? The minute I left Eton when I was 17. How did you meet him? I had a great friend, a fashion photographer called John French and his wife, Vera, who was a sort of campus couple in Europe. <laughs> Yeah, it's better like that, darling. <laughs> and one day John said, why don't you come to the studio and see, I don't know, one of those model girls being filmed, you know. And there was David, and I took one look at David and fell in love with him that minute, that second. Really? He was so glamorous. Unbelievable, in, like mildly. In what way? He was dark and had long hair and thin, and he was just the most coolest thing you'd ever seen. Because he was different? Yeah. Well, he was my first introduction to the whole East End world. And what did he think of you? We became great friends almost overnight. We did everything together. He lived with me. What do you think it was that made you two <coughs> like each other? I don't know. It's the oddest thing. Opposites attracting, perhaps. He liked what I could offer him in, the, in a world that I knew about, and I liked what he could offer me. In. Mod scooters and Bill Gorry suits and pointed shoes and all that sort of thing. <laughs> And he had the most wonderful manners then, David. Is that something I really want to 
hear about America next, but is that something that you think's gone? Manners are completely gone. Manners and shame have gone. Nobody has any shame anymore. Nobody's ashamed of how they look, what they say, what they do. It's the most extraordinary thing. Why, why do you think that is? A dreadfully boring answer of the media. I mean, everybody's encouraged to be what they want to. Follow your dream, the most boring expression in the world. <laughs> Follow your dreams. <laughs> well, you shouldn't dream, you should get out and do it. It's a different thing. Right. You did that. Yeah, it took a, look, took a long time. but it was, I really wanted experience. I think I went to New York because I wanted to experience New York at that point, which was the most wonderful time to be in New York possible. The 60s in New York. People who didn't live in New York in the 60s have no idea what paradise it was. It was astonishing. Because England then wasn't much fun. Well, I suppose it was fun really after I left. England got more swinging. What year did you leave? I went in 61 or 2, I can't remember, to America. Yeah, and also I was the English boy in New York, which helped a great deal. And the Stones would stay with me and, and the Beatles were friends and all that sort of stuff. I had a sort of entree for all that. Because I met them through David, that sort of people. What drew you to them? Because they weren't either the Beatles or the Stones when you met them. They were just a band. Bick was a student at LSE when I met him. What drew you to him? I can't think, because I loathe the music. Uh, <laughs> but I liked him. <laughs> He was fine. Mick was great, and he was his girlfriend was Chrissy Shrimpton, and it was Gene's sister. Just a bit of a gang. Did you feel that those kind of people, David Bailey, felt like a bit of a rebel? Mick felt like a bit of a rebel, maybe. Oh yeah, absolutely. They were. I, I think I was a bit of a rebel. Did you? We were certainly rebelling against what we'd known before. I think they just had it. In, it was a natural wellspring in them to be different and modern and new. David always says that he and I invented the 60s. He said in 1959 that we invented the 60s. And what does With he... our look and our view of life. I don't know quite what he meant, but it's very pleasing he said it. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com <laughs> that's quite a thing to say yeah is it because you went to new york in winkle pickers is it that no i didn't i didn't think i did, I didn't think I did go in the, the we had Arnello and David boots with heels. I went to New York, I thought, for three weeks. I stayed 11 years. I didn't mean to go forever. You didn't know you had a job? No, nope, I got the job. I, I went because a friend of mine, I wanted to start a nightclub, and a friend of mine who was going to back it said, go to New York and look at the nightclubs there. So while I was there, a woman who'd been an editor on Vogue, who was there at the time, said to the head of Vogue, there's this boy here who doesn't do anything, he's quite clever, you ought to see him. <laughs> And I saw this man, and Alexander Lieben, and um, he hired me on the spot, so I stayed. And what role did he give you? I was in the art department, which was wonderful, and then three months after I joined Vogue, Diana Vreeland arrived, mm. which made a huge difference to my life, because she was so wonderful. We got on like a house on fire. My father sent me this photograph of the Beatles, and they, they hadn't come to America, but they'd been heard of. And I showed him the picture. He said, get them photographed. And we, I came over and we photographed them in, in a gig in um, Northampton and Vogue published it. It was the first picture ever published of the Beatles in America. And did you like them? 
me up. Didn't I jump? I was a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> um, Paul was very sweet. He was engaged to my cousin at the time. What was it about John? He had that sort of supercilious look about him. But if you said something funny, he'd sort of, he'd sort of say, don't try to be funny. I mean, I definitely didn't say that, but Diana Cooper once said, people say, don't try to be funny. It's the only thing I try to be. It's all to be here in life for is trying to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you look back on those 11 years? I really want to ask you about being a cowboy. How, how, do, you, how do you look? I've just been stalking Well, the best, the best thing was, get, even when I was living in New York before I went to Arizona, I'd go to Hollywood every year for a month in the summer and stay with a friend of mine, with whom I met every single Hollywood star, every single Hollywood director, every single, I mean, Garbo, Dietrich, Billy Wilder, Louis Marston, Howard Hawks, Howard Hughes, I mean, just every single one of them. So I saw the last gasp of Hollywood as it was, when it was a purely a, a movie town. And it was magic. What was Marlene Dietrich like? Well, she was very like her, but, but really like, just like you imagine. Well, it's hard to say what she was like. And then, but Jean said to me, I, I asked Marlene to lunch up, she, she said, but, you know, she's an awful bore, she only talks about herself. And I said, I don't bother talking about anything else. It's absolutely perfect. <laughs> and did she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also I had that male ballet world here before I went like... Rudy Nureyev and I knew all them. And then they came to America, they were in New York when I was there. It seems like a community that really started forming. Yes, you're right, it was a community. People that were free-thinking and almost just, just going on their natural instincts. Exactly right, exactly. That's what's so nice about it. Think. There was no pressure mm. to conform. It's so inspiring to, to hear you talk. It takes a lot of guts, I think, to go, oh, I want to set up a nightclub, OK, I'll go to New York. Mm. All right, I'll do this. Yeah, okay, I think I can do that job. I think that's quite rare, actually, to, to, to carve one's own path. Why did you become a cowboy? Come walking I... into this apartment today, if you'd said to me, guess some of the other jobs that I'd done. <laughs> I mean, no offence by this, I would never have said cowboy. <laughs> Talk to me about it. Um... I think well, cowboys were very glamorous people in those days. I mean, they were, I just wanted to all wear all the kit and ride horses, and, and so we bought this ranch in Arizona. Who had you met, and what had happened to you to go and live in the middle of nowhere? Jimmy, my, my boyfriend. And how did you meet him? I met him in New York. I, mean, I, I, I loved him the minute I saw him, and he had a grandmother who lived in Arizona. We went to see her, and I just absolutely adored Arizona, because it was extraordinary then. And we just we bought this ranch and bred Arabian horses. So, what would your average day be like? Training the horses. Um, God, I can't remember. It's, we're talking about sixty years ago. Um, drive to Phoenix to a six, the nearest town, sixty miles away, to buy the groceries. Picking people up at the airport to come to stay. Teaching the Hopi chef how to make delicious food. Painting. We had a, I had a cabin on the on the river below the ranch where I painted. But as riding, a, I remember a lot of riding, we rode a lot. Yeah. But as someone who I would identify as needing a lot of stimulation, it seems strange that you were able to be there for that lot. I think I was stimulated because it was such a completely unknown, un, un, a new life, and it, I, I'd never envisaged. Where did you go after that? Did you then come back to the... To Los Angeles for, for three years. The two of you? No, just me. Right, he and somebody else. As is the way of these things. I took my motorbike. I was a, I was a hell's angel. I had a whoppy great Harley Davidson chopper. No. Yeah. All the time you were there? Yeah. 
and so you hopped on that and went to LA. Yeah. Did you stay with Kruber Capote on the way at Palm Springs? How can you just throw all these things out? Literally, everything you're saying is blowing my mind. <laughs> it was a hell's angel, and then stayed with Truman Capote on the way. What was Truman Capote like? Well, just like you expect. Naughty, funny, maddening sometimes. He used to come and stay at the ranch quite a lot. Brilliant, dangerous. You don't want to leave the room before him. Why? <laughs> you know, what, is that? what might be said. Oh, what might be said? Yeah, you know. Oh my dear, it's like awful. <laughs> so he was mercurial. Yeah, he was very sweet to be actually. I must say. So you went to Los Angeles to live. Yes, and I went the to ranch. S- what happened? Jimmy kept it for a few day, few years, and then sold it. Both of them, and the, the one in Canada. No, that, that was his mother's. But that's still going. It's where we have seen River of No Return, the Marilyn Monroe movie. That was filmed there, and so is Breakback Mountains, filmed on the on the ranch. Really? Did you meet Marilyn Monroe? Yes. What was she like? Was she beautiful? No, she was absolutely so dirty, so um, worried, so nervous. Bert Stone had done these famous photographs of her. The first ones were ever naked. And then the art, we were in the art department in Vogue, and my boss, Priscilla Peck, said, I think you better go up and show these, because she had picture control. Marilyn, you better go and show these pictures to Miss Monroe. And so she gave me a China graph pencil, the, all the, te- the sheets, you know. Oh, the the proofs. And I rang Marilyn's doorbell, 57th Street, and she came to the door, a terrible state, and her dirty tracksuit with makeup all around the end, and hair in greasy hair, with this dog, Mafia, because Frank Sinatra gave it to me, she said. Um, <laughs> barking. Shut up, Mafia, she kept saying. And, um, she just stood in the doorway, with her, keeping the door open, and she ticked the one she liked, put her finger through the one she didn't like. Really? And doing that so well. And then the telephone rang. She said, I've got to go now. She just disappeared down the corridor, leaving the door open, but I left. So quite a scatty. Well, I think she it wasn't long before she died. I think perhaps it was the president of the telephone or somebody, you know, I mean, it was six weeks before she died. She was in a terrible state. Why were they doing pictures of her? Was she still a big star? Or was yeah, she was a huge star. Right. And, but getting her naked was amazing. I mean, they could never... She, they picked a photograph one girl called Christina Palazzi with her tits showing, which had caused uproar in Vogue. Was that anything... When I worked on Vogue, we had to touch our navels. They were considered obscene. Really? Did you find it easy to do shocking things when you were at Vogue or things that had big impact? Yeah, I changed the look of Vogue. Liebman told me that. I did, I did layouts that had never been done before. In what way? Just putting the capital letter at the bottom of the page or something, and doing things that were literally... Because it was a very standard way of Vogue. The print was tiny and always one typeface. Tell us a bit about Andy Warhol, because that was at the same time, right? Well, I met him at Vogue. He came in to give some of his drawings to um, the shoe who was doing those shoes. And he came in, I remember him so well, he had sort of this white face and not silver hair then, sort of mousy hair out of his eyes and black clothes. Well, to start with, he'd give all these drawings that he'd done. We'd take them to the, what's called the stat room, which was a copying machine. To copy them all the right side, in the bin, the originals. I mean, the amount of Andes I threw away is just terrifying. <laughs> and I took it to Park, he says in his, in his biography, Nicky Haslam took me to Park Avenue and made me smart. And um, that's how he met Jane Holzer and Mick. Mick Jagger. 
Who was the greatest artist ever been, Eddie Wall? Bar none, bar none. You said something very funny to me once. At the time, it didn't feel like that. No, yeah, we thought that did jokes. Ludicrous. So we thought, and we thought the paintings were jokes too. I remember his first shirt, Leo Castelli. We did the. My sister was married to Mr. Brillo, and Andy had done these Brillo boxes. And I said to Anne, "My friend's done these pictures of Brillo boxes. You ought to get one." She said, "Oh God, I've got enough of the real thing. I don't want them." And I mean, had she bought them then, you know? So we thought we thought Andy was a complete joke. And what was it that people or you felt that he was doing different at the time? Well, he was just a genius. I mean, he changed the face of art. I mean, it went, whether one sees it, I didn't, I don't, whether I saw it at the time. You don't know that you did? I'm not sure. Mm. If I had done, I would have bought some or maybe <laughs> give me some. He <laughs> gave me Sorry, one and of course I sold it. But no. he, he, was a, he was an incredibly sweet person, and people would rather get him wrong. What took you back from America? What brought you back to the UK? I, I think anybody who lives in America for anybody who's sensible, like 10 or 12 years, Realize Americans are absolute dickheads, they do nothing at all. And you have to get out of it. And you came back with vigour to start your... No, nothing. I came back absolutely not knowing what to do at all. And somebody, Mark Shan, was he the first or was it Nicholas Soames? One of them commissioned me to do a flat for them. And it started then. When did you set up your business then? Then. 70... 71 or 2. And then Tom Bell joined me, who now runs... Hartford Street for Mark Burley, uh, for Robin Burley. Several people joined. William Yeoard, Kath Kinston, all those people have done so well. Kirsty Allsop. Kirsty Allsop, exactly. How have you maintained your business from the 70s? Not sure I have. To now. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I do quite sort of specialised, precious, strange things. Nobody wants everything done in a second with a huge television and looking like a hotel. I just can't do that. But I've found that it's quite hard now to find people who want, want it to be... Different? Beautiful, is a kind of way I'm trying to say, rather than... Yes. Is there a correlation between being gay and enjoying the beautiful, enjoying the glamorous? Well, I think you're right. I think, I think glamour's a, a catch-all word for what gay's like. But I think you know, certainly but I think gay people have a much better eye. I wonder why that is. The discernment is what he's got in, in what you have. What do you think that comes from? Learning, just l- looking. Mm. Not spending your life going to the gym and being in a wine bar with a lot of huge men and going to the office. I've never... Do you think it's to do with looking? Yeah. You've been taught to be on the outside looking in. Yeah. Because you've never been part of the crowd. Yeah. Because all these things, you know, decorating and fashion, fashion and being the one who thinks that David Bailey is not strange for his winkle pickers, but amazing for his winkle pickers, is because you've always learnt to look at things from a different perspective. Well, to, to embrace the new. Mm. Mm. How do you see things now in terms of being a gay man, the changes? Do you agree with gay marriage? I'm totally against it. That's why I was a no-show. I mean, I'm totally against myself when I say <laughs> I'm that. <joking. laughs> I'm appalled that Christopher's got married because I love him so much and now I've got no chance <laughs> it's, I just think it seems so alien to what I always imagined it was the world was to be that I'm still getting to terms with it you think romance is gone now? to a certain extent I think it has don't you? one of the better hearts and flowers romance I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing like that anymore it's all 
sex is drugs here, doesn't it? Well, that's interesting hearing you say that. I mean, that is a... That is a you've had a couple of invites. No, <laughs> Actually, my alarm's going off. I've got to go. <laughs> it's a mess. Um, well, there's the chemsex scene. Is chemsex is big getting... People taking yeah. GHB and... I, you know, I read an article today about someone positing the argument that the reason people are doing it is because it is wrapped up in the idea of intimacy... There's a bit of shame in the idea of being intimate yeah, with someone. Yeah, yeah. So you drug yourself yeah, to the extent. Yes, that that's very true. I feel like there's a riddle in here somewhere that mm. when I listened to you talk, you were extraordinary to not give a shit about being gay when you were a child, who sort of creates your own path against the grain of everybody without even thinking that you did, which is what true people who are transgressive do. You know, you go to New York and then you go to LA and all these people who you could have felt judged by, you didn't feel judged by, which makes you ultimately the most open-minded person to have hit the face of the earth. But then when it comes to gay marriage and things, you feel that it's unnecessary. And I wonder why that bothers you when ultimately it's like, I feel like you've led a life like someone who says anyone can do anything. I suppose I felt all my life that the whole point of being gay was not to get married. You've had long-term relationships. Yeah, which four, are, four long ones. As someone who hasn't had a longer relationship than two years, and that was pretty broken, um, <laughs> basically dynasty in a relationship, um, if those relationships had been marriage, would you have felt differently about them? Well, I think in two of them I felt it was a marriage. So if they were called marriage? No, I just felt with Jimmy and with Paolo mm. that it was for life. Looking back on that now, you wouldn't have needed or wanted marriage as something for straight people. I didn't expect anything from Jimmy or Paolo except love. And therefore it was perhaps in a way worse when it went wrong. Well, that's the... Yeah. Than if one had been more um, paper-led about it. Someone was saying that what's happened with being able to get married as a gay man and all of that is that chemsex scene is a reaction to that because gay yeah, people liked being different. That's a b- b- very strong point in its favour. You know, don't tell me or make me do the things that straight people want to do because now it's another thing that you've got to fulfil. When actually, maybe I, as a man, whether I'm gay or straight, just want to have sex. I always dread sex, anyway. Why is that? <laughs> I am probably bad at it. It's not, it's not really what I want out of relationships. Why do you think that is? Surely really only last three weeks. The sex bit? Yeah. Do you think that confuses relationships for men? Because men are stereotypically, and I think it is true to say, can be more driven by their dick than mm. women women can be by their pussy mm. you know it's a lovely thing I've just said um, <laughs> we put it in a song it's beautiful um, <laughs> we've got you, the lead you know, single it, it's a, yeah. <laughs> they, were, they driven, won't be West driven, Life driven by <laughs> pussy <laughs> do you think that cre- can create a complication because I, I think sex it can only last for so long and then you've got to be with the person and then that's when the love should be there do you think that can provide a complication for gay relationships? Yes, I, do, I, think, it do, I think it does. And I think that even if you're deeply in love with somebody, the moment you see them, even then the sex is rarely the thing that matters. It's also more about 
how people are and how they react to things and how they smell. That's that keeps you in love with somebody. I mean, mm. I read the other day there are more divorces, men and women who've shaved themselves and put a lot of deodorant and everything, and they're happy as clams for three weeks, and suddenly their real smell kicks in. Really? And they cannot bear each other. God, I can't hide my beer. It's there from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. It's, it's just a cross, cross I have to from bear. From the beginning. <laughs> yeah, from the beginning. <laughs> if I can pick one thing from your apartment to take home with me, <clears throat> can I have that light? <laughs> the big one. <laughs> Good luck getting that out can, the front door. I think I can get it into you the door. You can't. You can't get it through the door. Well, let's end thinking, it there with views towards... Will stealing a lamp. Me having a new light. Going what are you going to have? Room. I'm taking the Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> so that was our chat with Nicky Haslam. Well, what an interesting discussion. He's he's hilarious because I always find that he's a contrarian, which is why he's so interesting. So if everyone's wearing blue, he'll wear red. So he'll say gay marriage is pointless, and you know yeah. he always takes an oppositional thing. And I, it's always interesting to listen to those angles yeah i like the thing that just little asides like well of course my sister was married to the you know the head of the brillo thing i'm like oh my god what graydon carter the editor of vanity fair talks about this thing called the seventh room of fame which is you get you have seven rooms of fame and the seventh room is like the zenith of power you know and nikki is definitely in there beyonce it's beyonce and jay-z and Blue Ivy basically is in there at the moment. Nicky has spent his life in the seventh room, basically. He took me for dinner in LA once with Jack Nicholson. Oh my God. I know, I nearly shat myself. Did you? Yeah, because he doesn't tell you that you're going for these dinners. So we're walking up the drive, we park at this house, said, we're going to a friend, Sue Menga's house. I was like, okay, I don't know that name. So we're in LA. And we arrive at this dinner, we're walking up the driveway. I hear, hey, Nicky. I was like, I know that voice. It is quite good, isn't it? And Jack Nicholson appears. He was like, How are you? They hadn't seen Nikki in like 40 years. Jack Nicholson then proceeded to put a cigarette out in the palm of his own hand. Shit, I love him. Threw it on the floor. He was like, Should we go in? Oh my God, that is amazing. Let us know what you thought of the interview. Please go to my Twitter, uh, which is at Will Young, and put hashtag Homo Sapiens. And you can email us at Homo Sapiens Podcast. You can email. <laughs> I was so, so almost there. And you can email us. God, this is hard. <laughs> at homo sapiens dot oh at homo sapiens podcast dot co dot uk it's dot com oh for fuck's sake <laughs> you can homo sapiens podcast shall I just do it dot com yeah but hello at hello at homo sapiens podcast dot com yeah I'm better at doing it Chris ching Inspired by Nikki Haslam's polymath, which means multiple zillions of jobs, we've been asking people what they wanted to be when they grew up, because he's done a million jobs. And it has been going gangbusters on Twitter. It's really funny. And do you know what's nice about this week's chat is that people are talking to each other and having conversations with each other rather than just directly replying. I like that. I do feel left out. um, Chance Bass says honestly wanted to be a paleontologist i know it's so nerdy but i love history and want to know what those creatures are like that's not nerdy that's great i don't think it's i don't think it's nerdy and also i think ross from friends for example exactly i think the people that know what they want to do from an early age are very lucky because i remember at university it was mm. very stressful people going i don't know what i want to do i don't know what i want to mm. do and that's i hear that a lot from people i just don't know what i want to do well that's what i think is very modern 
uh, is that nowadays people change their job all the time. We're looking at them. We've done it. Yeah. And, and we're in our late, early 30s. What's been your favourite job? Well, I can tell you my worst job mm-hmm. was ripping out labels of T-shirts in a T-shirt factory. That was last week with the Homo sapiens <laughs> t-shirts. <laughs> oh, it's like a Fruit factory in here. Fruit of the loom. Oh, I hope people got their t-shirts. That was my worst job because I was ripping out labels. They were t-shirts for all the football teams mm. to then put in like the Manchester United label or the Everton label, you know. Uh, so it wasn't like illegal. And I did say to well, him, I called over the sort of foreman for want of a better word. And I said, <laughs> and Hello, I, are you the foreman? <laughs> No, yeah, I know. It's a sort of posh, precocious student. And I said, look, just an idea. Why don't you get the T-shirts with the labels already out? And he went, you and your clever ideas, student. (laughs) I didn't come back. My worst job was I had to dress head to toe in a Formula One Ferrari outfit and sell petrol on a petrol station forecourt. And possibly the worst point about that is because it was sold to me as a modelling job. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that brings us to a close of this week's episode. How's the anger, Will? Let's check in with that anger. You know what? My anger's much better. (laughs) (laughs) The anger has diminished. And I think there's a little bit of sadness there now, which is quite often underneath the anger. And what's that? Is is it because you're tired? Should I tell you why I'm angry? Yeah. I'm opening up to the Twitter sphere again. It's brought up a little bit of anger. I went to a meeting yesterday mm-hmm. and our friend told me that one of the people in the meeting was the new boyfriend of my ex. Did I not tell you that? No. It's brought up a bit of anger. Mm. Why am I angry about it? Because I'm kind of over it in that sense. Well, it's shit because he fancies him, not you. And that always hurts. But I'm kind of over it. I know, but one always likes to win no matter what. It feels like an affirmation of your own worst fears about yourself. Oh, my God. Sometimes the way you put things, I feel rejected. Yeah. And I feel not good enough. Yeah. We're getting to it. And now I'm feeling better. <laughs> now I'm feeling better. Oh, what a great place Butterflies to are end. flying around our heads now. So we're going to do our jingle to sing us out. Thank you very much for listening. Ultranate free. You're free. Home. To do homo what you want sapiens. to do. Oh, yeah. Homo. Homo, homo sapiens. Homo. You do what you want to do. Homo. Homo, you homo mo. Do yeah. what you want to do. I'm going to go and have a donut. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Powered by Spirit Studios.